This is a Federal News Network podcast. When the Biden Justice Department sued Booz Allen on antitrust grounds over Booz's acquisition of Everwatch, that sent a signal the federal contracting class of companies is not exempt from an aggressive antitrust stance. Justice said the acquisition would combine the only two competitors in certain support services for national security. Here with the industry's reaction, the CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And David, does this feel like kind of new ground to you guys? It does, Tom. You know, there were a lot of signals from this. In fact, it was a year ago, July 9th of nineteen of 2021, 19. I'm getting lost in the decades here. Uh, but it was a year ago that, uh, that the executive order on competition was released by the White House. And it had a heavy focus on um, too much consolidation going on. Now, much of that executive order was focused on the commercial marketplace, not on the government contracting marketplace. In fact, there was only a small part of it that focused on DOD and focused on government contractors. Now, a year later, we have the Justice Department filing a lawsuit to block an acquisition that on its face seems to be a very small uh, uh, issue because it's only a single contract and it's a contract, it's a classified contract with the National Security Agency. So there's not a lot that we can say publicly about the contract, or at least not a lot that, that we can see uh, and report on. But this is to us, and, and I've spoken with many mergers and acquisition lawyers around town since the uh, lawsuit was filed on, on the 29th of June, it's an unprecedented action by the Justice Department uh, to define competition not based upon a marketplace, but based upon a single contract. And it's a contract that for which the solicitation hasn't even been issued yet. So it's not an active ongoing contract. So to, to accuse Booz of having bought its only viable competitor seems to us to be quite a stretch and an unprecedented action. Where does this go then? It's unclear what specific services Justice says would have no more competition with the merger of these two companies. But could this have been a warning from inside the intelligence community that is going to be letting this contract that's figuring we're only going to get two competitors to bid and now look what's happening? Well, one of the questions uh, to which we're not sure we know the answer uh, yet is whether or not the Justice Department even talked to the agency about this order before they filed the lawsuit. Um, and, and Booz Allen has indicated in its, uh, in its press statements that it intends to challenge uh, the issue. And so we'll be seeing a court case uh, flowing from this, uh, all indications so far. But in fact, if, if the uh, agency was not even consulted as part of the process, it really raises some very serious questions about both the intentions of the administration and the way in which they're following those intentions. Because they have challenged some of the big aerospace mergers in the past. Absolutely. Uh, the most recent, of course, was, was Lockheed Martin's uh, uh, bid to acquire Aerojet, and that ended up in a, a lawsuit as well. The pursuit was dropped as a result. That case did not go to court. In fact, most of the time when the Justice Department files the suit to block a merger or an acquisition, the merger or acquisition falls apart. Uh, nobody wants to go fight it in court. That doesn't seem to be the case this time. But this is a services contract, and it's not a very large services contract. My understanding is it's fewer than 100 uh, full-time equivalent uh, personnel involved in the process. And so it's, a, it's kind of a strange one to pick as the, the precedent-setting activity here. Don't know what the administration's uh, interests are here. So far, there have been no comments from the, from the Defense Department whatsoever on this. And that's a bit of a surprise as well, because their competition report issued last February really did focus as its primary recommendation, reducing excessive consolidation in the industry, even though the report itself said 
that wasn't a big problem. And this was only Booz's bid to buy a piece of a larger company, EC Defense Holdings. And this is for NSA, was going to issue the solicitation for operational modeling and simulation services for its signals intelligence data missions. It almost makes you think that if Booz were to acquire this EverWatch, 10 other companies would say, golly, now there's only one bidder. Let's jump in. Uh, it's uh, certainly the possibility. I mean, uh, look, competition is generated not by the government as much as it is by the existence of companies who want to bid on this sort of thing. The solicitation could well generate interest from quite a number of people. In fact, my suspicion is all this attention has increased the visibility of this contract well beyond what it normally would have had if it were coming up for a, for a recompete. But the bigger question is, what kind of precedent does this set? What comes next, right? Because if an individual contract can be the basis for an antitrust action, then where's the limit to that? I mean, there's you know millions of contract actions every year taken by the federal government, uh, most of them in the services business. And so there's sure. huge questions that we have as to where does this go. Maybe the next one will be a task order. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And on this theme, there is the idea of a study. This is part of one of the, I think, Defense Authorization Acts to look at DOD and the way it finances contracts. And there's some big changes that could come there, too. Tell us what you're seeing. So back in June, the Defense Department, through its Defense uh, uh, Federal Acquisition Regulation Office, the DFAR office in DOD, issued an RFI, 30 days for comments from industry to uh, provide insight and input into DOD as it undertakes a study of contract financing. Now, contract financing includes, of course, payments in advance of delivery, progress payments, but it also includes a host of other issues and practices associated with how the government pays its bills for its contractors. This stems from an aborted request back in, a proposal back in 2018 by DOD to cut dramatically progress payments to 50%. It, it generated an outcry not only from industry, PSC uh, included in that process, but also from the Congress, and it was ultimately that proposal was dropped. A GAO study was requested by an NDAA. In fact, it, that study was issued in 2019, and it had only one recommendation. It recommended that DOD undertake a full study of contract financing. In fact, Tom, it's almost 40 years since the last such study. Uh, the Defense Finance and Investment Review, the DFAIR uh, study, was done in 1984. The report issued in 1985. I happen to have been privileged to work on it, and I can tell you that it's a bit out of date based upon today's finance world, right? In fact, the words free cash flow don't even appear in the report whatsoever, and it drives publicly traded companies today. So it's certainly time for a study, and the DOD has only given industry, though, 30 days to provide comments. Uh, PSC will be submitting comments next week uh, when they're due, and then we're going to track this study very, very carefully. It's a very important set of questions, though. How does the government fund the industry that relies on the government for its market. Right. I think industry, and by the way, you must be the only one alive who remembers the 84-85 study, <laughs> but industry cares a lot about this because if the somehow it were to be established that DOD only pays for things after final delivery, then contractors would have to carry tremendous costs on services contracts or, or even development contracts of, of products until the very end. Well, that's true. And if you look back at the previous topic we were talking about, if in 
fact, the government is going to intervene in a company's ability to acquire other companies and grow through acquisitions as opposed to grow through organically through additional work. The government has to recognize that it is, in fact, the marketplace, right? It's not as if you can create competition for more than what the government's going to be willing to buy. And so in the end, how the government finances these companies is really critical because they can't compete in the financial marketplace the same way a commercial company does. They can't, if you can't be acquiring, if you can't be investing in, in, uh, in your business, then the government has to finance you. And it becomes really critical uh, for all of industry as to how the government's going to play this out. They give no clue in the, uh, in the RFI as to what they're thinking. They only ask a series of questions about financial health, about uh, access to capital, about paying contractors and subcontractors, about the impact on small sure. businesses, and so on. And on this antitrust idea, I can't help, it's probably a stretch, but Health and Human Services awards regional contracts exclusively to single suppliers of baby formula under the public assistance programs, and therefore we have a baby shortage formula from lack of competitors. And so it makes you kind of wonder, the government can be of two minds sometimes in different domains. Uh, well, yeah, consistency is, is certainly something that we would like to see because it makes it easier for companies to plan and, and, and invest in their workforce and in their technology capabilities, et cetera. I think that the, the ra- rationalizing all of these government actions uh, is something that's really critical. And the left hand does have to know what the right hand is doing, and they have to be connected to the same set of objectives. David Berto is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much for this insight. You're welcome, Tom. Look forward to this to be continued later on. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether 
you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is 
I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. You made it. Checked out of office to check into the sweet views of this place where the kids aren't asking for the Wi-Fi. Mom, can we go to the pool? And when you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. 